0: Truman, Truman, Truman. Instantly, a great dread seized me. What revelations might not this man be going to make? But I subdued the feeling, and greeting him with what cordiality I could, settled myself to listen to his explanations. But Truman Harwell had no explanations to give, or so it seemed. On the contrary, he'd come to apologize for the very violent words he had used the evening before, words which, whatever their effect upon me, he now felt bound to declare had been used without sufficient basis, in fact to make their utterance of the least importance. But you must have thought you had grounds for so tremendous an accusation where your act was that of a madman. His brow wrinkled heavily, and his eyes assumed a very gloomy expression. It does not follow, he returned. Under the pressure of surprise, I have known men utter convictions... "'no better founded than mine, without running the risk of being called mad. "'Surprise! Mr. Clavering's face or form must, then, have been known to you. "'The mere fact of seeing a strange gentleman in the hall "'would have been insufficient to cause you astonishment, Mr. Harwell.' "'He uneasily fingered the back of the chair, before which he stood, but made no reply.' "'Sit down,' I again urged, "'this time with a touch of command in my voice. "'This is a serious matter, "'and I intend to deal with it as it deserves. "'You once said that if you knew anything "'which might serve to exonerate Eleanor Leavenworth "'from the suspicion under which she stands, "'you would be ready to impart it. "'Pardon me. "'I said that if I had ever known anything calculated "'to release her from her unhappy position, "'I would have spoken,' he coldly corrected. "'Do not quibble.' you know, and I know, that you are keeping something back, and I ask you, in her behalf and in the cause of justice, to tell me what it is. You are mistaken, was his dogged reply. I have reasons, perhaps, for certain conclusions I may have drawn, but my conscience will not allow me in cold blood to give utterance to suspicions which may not only damage the reputation of an honest man, "'but place me in the unpleasant position of an accuser "'without substantial foundation for my accusations. "'You occupy that position already,' I retorted, with equal coldness. "'Nothing can make me forget that in my presence "'you have denounced Henry Clavering as the murderer of Mr. Leavenworth. "'You had better explain yourself, Mr. Harwell.' "'He gave me a short look, but moved around and took the chair.' "'You have me at a disadvantage,' he said, in a lighter tone. "'If you choose to profit by your position "'and press me to disclose the little I know, "'I can only regret the necessity under which I lie and speak. "'Then you are deterred by conscientious scruples alone. "'Yes, and by the meagerness of the facts at my command. "'I will judge of the facts when I have heard them.' "'He raised his eyes to mine.' and I was astonished to observe a strange eagerness in their depths. Evidently, his convictions were stronger than his scruples. Mr. Raymond, he began, you are a lawyer, and undoubtedly a practical man, but you may know what it is to scent danger before you see it, to feel influences working in the air over and about you, and yet be in ignorance of what it is that affects you so powerfully, till... Chance reveals that an enemy has been at your side, or a friend passed your window, or the shadow of death crossed your book as you read, or mingled with your breath as you slept. I shook my head, fascinated by the intensity of his gaze to some sort of response. Then you cannot understand me, or what I have suffered these last three weeks. And he drew back with an icy reserve. "'that seemed to promise but little to my now thoroughly awakened curiosity. "'I beg your pardon,' I hastened to say, "'but the fact of my never having experienced such sensations "'does not hinder me from comprehending the emotions of others "'more affected by spiritual influences than myself.' "'He drew himself slowly forward. "'Then you'll not ridicule me "'if I say that upon the eve of Mr. Leavenworth's murder—' I experienced in a dream all that afterwards occurred, saw him murdered, saw... and he clasped his hands before him in an attitude inexpressibly convincing, while his voice sank to a horrified whisper, saw the face of his murderer. I started, looked at him in amazement, a thrill as at a ghostly presence running through me. And was that... I began... My reason for denouncing the man I beheld before me in the hall of Miss Leavenworth's house last night? It was. And taking out his handkerchief, he wiped his forehead, on which the perspiration was standing in large drops. You would then intimate that the face you saw in your dream and the face you saw in the hall last night were the same? He gravely nodded his head. I drew my chair nearer to his. Tell me your dream, said I. It was the night before Mr. Leavenworth's murder. I had gone to bed feeling especially contented with myself and the world at large, for, though my life is anything but a happy one, and he heaved a short sigh, some pleasant words had been said to me that day, and I was reveling in the happiness they conferred, when suddenly a chill struck my heart, and the darkness, which a moment before had appeared to me as the abode of peace, thrilled to the sound of a supernatural cry, "'and I heard my name. "'Truman, Truman, Truman, "'repeated three times in a voice I did not recognize. "'And starting from my pillow, "'beheld at my bedside a woman. "'Her face was strange to me,' he solemnly proceeded. "'But I can give you each and every detail of it. "'As bending above me, "'she stared into my eyes with a growing terror "'that seemed to implore help, "'though her lips were quiet.' "'and only the memory of that cry echoed in my ears. "'Describe the face,' I interposed. "'It was a round, fair lady's face, "'very lovely in contour, but devoid of colouring, "'not beautiful, but winning from its childlike look of trust. "'The hair, banded upon the low, broad forehead, was brown, "'the eyes, which were very far apart, grey. "'the mouth, which was its most charming feature, "'delicate of make and very expressive. "'There was a dimple in the chin, but none in the cheeks. "'It was a face to be remembered. "'Go on,' said I. "'Meeting the gaze of those imploring eyes, I started up. "'Instantly the face and all vanished, "'and I became conscious, as we sometimes do in dreams, "'of a certain movement in the hall below,' and the next instant the gliding figure of a man of imposing size entered the library. I remember experiencing a certain thrill at this, half terror, half curiosity, though I seemed to know, as if by intuition, what he was going to do. Strange to say, I now seemed to change my personality, and to be no longer a third party, watching these proceedings, but Mr. Leavenworth himself, sitting at his library table, and feeling his doom crawling upon him without capacity for speech or power of movement to avert it. Though my back was towards the man, I could feel his stealthy form traverse the passage, enter the room beyond, pass to that stand where the pistol was, try the drawer, find it locked, turn the key, procure the pistol, weigh it in an accustomed hand, and advance again. I could feel each footstep he took as though his feet were in truth upon my heart. And I remember staring at the table before me as if I expected every moment to see it run with my own blood. I can see now how the letters I had been writing danced upon the paper before me, peering to my eyes to take the phantom shapes of persons and things long ago forgotten, crowding my last moments with regrets and dead shames, wild longings and unspeakable agonies, through all of which that face, the face of my former dream, mingled, pale, sweet, and searching, while closer and closer behind me crept that noiseless foot, till I could feel the glaring of the assassin's eyes across the narrow threshold, separating me from death, and hear the click of his teeth as he set his lips for the final act. Ah! and the secretary's livid face showed the touch of awful horror. What words can describe such an experience as that? In one moment, all the agonies of hell in the heart and brain, the next, a blank through which I seemed to see afar, and as if suddenly removed from all this, a crouching figure looking at its work with starting eyes and pallid, back-drawn lips, and seeing, recognize no face that I had ever known, but one so handsome, so remarkable, so unique in its formation and character, that it would be as easy for me to mistake the countenance of my father as the look and figure of the man revealed to me in my dream. And this face, said I, in a voice I failed to recognize as my own, was that of him whom we saw leave Mary Leavenworth's presence last night and go down the hall to the front door. Chapter 21 A Prejudice. For one moment I sat a prey to superstitious horror. Then, my natural incredulity asserting itself, I looked up and remarked, "'You say that all this took place the night previous to the actual occurrence?' He bowed his head. "'For a warning,' he declared. "'But you did not seem to take it as such. "'No. I am subject to horrible dreams.' "'I thought but little of it in a superstitious way "'till I looked next day upon Mr. Leavenworth's dead body. "'I do not wonder you behaved strangely at the inquest. "'Ah, sir,' he returned with a slow, sad smile, "'no one knows what I suffered in my endeavors "'not to tell more than I actually knew, "'irrespective of my dream of this murder "'and the manner of its accomplishment. "'You believe, then, that your dream foreshadowed "'the manner of the murder,' "'as well as the fact. "'I do. "'It is a pity it did not go a little further then "'and tell us how the assassin escaped from, "'if not how he entered, a house so securely fastened. "'His face flushed. "'That would have been convenient,' he repeated. "'Also if I had been informed where Hannah was "'and why a stranger and a gentleman "'should have stooped to the committal of such a crime. "'Seeing that he was nettled, I dropped my bantering vein.' "'Why do you say a stranger?' I asked. "'Are you so well acquainted with all who visit that house "'as to be able to say who are and who are not strangers to the family? "'I am well acquainted with the faces of their friends, "'and Henry Clavering is not amongst the number, but... "'Were you ever with Mr. Leavenworth?' I interrupted, "'when he has been away from home, in the country, for instance, "'or upon his travels?' "'No.' "'But the negative came with some constraint.' "'yet I suppose he was in the habit of absenting himself from home. "'Certainly. "'Can you tell me where he was last July, he and the ladies?' "'Yes, sir. "'They went to Riverdale. "'The famous watering-place, you know. "'Ah!' he cried, seeing a change in my face. "'Do you think he could have met them there?' "'I looked at him for a moment. "'Then, rising in my turn, stood level with him, and exclaimed, "'You are keeping something back, Mr. Harwell.' You have more knowledge of this man than you have hitherto given me to understand. What is it? He seemed astonished at my penetration, but replied, I know no more of the man than I have already informed you. But, and a burning flush crossed his face, if you are determined to pursue this matter, and he paused with an inquiring look, I am resolved to find out all I can about Henry Clavering, was my decided answer. Then, said he, I can tell you this much. Henry Clavering wrote a letter to Mr. Leavenworth a few days before the murder, which I have some reason to believe produced a marked effect upon the household. And folding his arms, the secretary stood quietly awaiting my next question. How do you know? I asked. I opened it by mistake. I was in the habit of reading Mr. Leavenworth's business letters, and this, being from one unaccustomed to write to him, "'lack the mark which usually distinguish those of a private nature. "'And you saw the name of Clavering?' "'I did. Henry Ritchie Clavering. "'Did you read the letter?' "'I was trembling now. The secretary did not reply. "'Mr. Harwell,' I reiterated, "'this is no time for false delicacy. "'Did you read that letter?' "'I did, but hastily and with an agitated conscience. "'You can, however, recall its general drift.' "'It was some complaint in regard to the treatment received by him "'at the hand of one of Mr. Leavenworth's nieces. "'I remember nothing more. "'Which niece? "'There were no names mentioned. "'But you inferred... "'No, sir, that is just what I did not do. "'I forced myself to forget the whole thing. "'And yet you say it produced an effect upon the family. "'I can see now that it did. "'None of them have ever appeared quite the same as before.' "'Mr. Harwell,' I gravely continued, "'when you were questioned as to the receipt "'of any letter by Mr. Leavenworth, "'which might seem in any manner "'to be connected with this tragedy, "'you denied having seen any such. "'How was that?' "'Mr. Raymond, you are a gentleman. "'Have a chivalrous regard for the ladies. "'Do you think you could have brought yourself, "'even if, in your secret heart, "'you considered some such result possible, "'which I am not ready to say I did,' "'to mention, at such a time as that, "'the receipt of a letter complaining of the treatment "'received from one of Mr. Leavenworth's nieces "'as a suspicious circumstance "'worthy to be taken into account by a coroner's jury.' "'I shook my head. "'I could not but acknowledge the impossibility. "'What reason had I for thinking that letter was one of importance? "'I knew of no Henry Ritchie clavering. "'And yet you seem to think it was.' "'I remember you hesitated before replying. "'It is true, but not as I should hesitate now "'if the question were put to me again.' "'Silence followed these words, "'during which I took two or three turns up and down the room. "'This is all very fanciful,' I remarked, "'laughing in the vain endeavor "'to throw off the superstitious horror his words had awakened. "'He bent his head in assent. "'I know it,' said he. "'I am practical myself in broad daylight "'and recognize the flimsiness of an accusation "'based upon a poor, hard-working secretary's dream "'as plainly as you do. "'This is the reason I desired to keep from speaking at all. "'But Mr. Raymond and his long, thin hand "'fell upon my arm with a nervous intensity "'which gave me almost the sensation of an electric shock. "'If the murderer of Mr. Leavenworth "'is ever brought to confess his deed,' Mark my words, he will prove to be the man of my dream. I drew a long breath. For a moment his belief was mine, and a mingled sensation of relief and exquisite pain swept over me as I thought of the possibility of Eleanor being exonerated from crime, only to be plunged into fresh humiliation and deeper abysses of suffering. "'He stalks the streets in freedom now,' the secretary went on, as if to himself." "'even dares to enter the house "'he is so woefully desecrated. "'But justice is justice, "'and sooner or later "'something will transpire "'which will prove to you "'that a premonition so wonderful "'as that I received "'had its significance, "'that the voice calling Truman Truman "'was something more than the empty utterances "'of an excited brain, "'that it was justice itself "'calling attention to the guilty. "'I looked at him in wonder.' did he know that the officers of justice were already upon the track of the same Clavering? I judged not from his look, but felt an inclination to make an effort and see. You speak with strange conviction, I said, but in all probability you are doomed to be disappointed. So far as we know, Mr. Clavering is a respectable man. He lifted his hat from the table. I do not propose to denounce him. I do not even propose to speak his name again. I am not a fool, Mr. Raymond. I have spoken thus plainly to you only in explanation of last night's most unfortunate betrayal, and while I trust you will regard what I have told you as confidential, I also hope you will give me credit for behaving on the whole as well as could be expected under the circumstances. Then he held out his hand. Certainly, I replied as I took it. Then, with a sudden impulse to test the accuracy of this story of his inquired if he had any means of verifying his statement of having had this dream at the time spoken of, that is, before the murder, and not afterwards. No, sir. I know myself that I had it the night previous to that of Mr. Leavenworth's death, but I cannot prove the fact. Did not speak of it next morning to anyone? Oh, no, sir. I was scarcely in a position to do so. Yet it must have had a great effect upon you, "'unfitting you for work?' "'Nothing unfits me for work,' was his bitter reply. "'I believe you,' I returned, "'remembering his diligence for the last few days. "'But you must at least have shown some traces "'of having passed an uncomfortable night. "'Have you no recollection of anyone speaking to you "'in regard to your appearance the next morning?' "'Mr. Leavenworth may have done so. "'No one else would be likely to notice. "'There was sadness in the tone,' and my own voice softened as I said, "'I shall not be at the house tonight, Mr. Harwell, "'nor do I know when I shall return there. "'Personal considerations keep me "'from Miss Leavenworth's presence for a time, "'and I look to you to carry on the work we have undertaken "'without my assistance, unless you can bring it here. "'I can do that. "'I shall expect you, then, tomorrow evening.' "'Very well, sir.' "'And he was going, when a sudden thought seemed to strike him.' "'Sir,' he said, "'as we do not wish to return to the subject again, "'and as I have a natural curiosity in regard to this man, "'would you object to telling me what you know of him? "'You believe him to be a respectable man. "'Are you acquainted with him, Mr. Raymond?' "'I know his name, and where he resides. "'And where is that?' "'In London. He's an Englishman.' "'Ah,' he murmured, with a strange intonation. "'Why do you say that?' "'He bit his lip, looked down, then up, "'finally fixed his eyes on mine "'and returned with marked emphasis, "'I used an exclamation, sir, because I was startled.' "'Startled?' "'Yes. You say he's an Englishman. "'Mr. Leavenworth had the most bitter antagonism to the English. "'It was one of his marked peculiarities. "'He would never be introduced to one if he could help it. "'It was my turn to look thoughtful.' "'You know,' continued the secretary, "'that Mr. Leavenworth was a man who carried his prejudices to the extreme. "'He had a hatred for the English race amounting to mania. "'If he had known the letter I have mentioned was from an Englishman, "'I doubt if he would have read it. "'He used to say he would sooner see a daughter of his dead before him "'than married to an Englishman. "'I turned hastily aside to hide the effect "'which this announcement made upon me. "'You think I'm exaggerating,' he said. "'Ask Mr. Veely." No, I replied, I have no reason for thinking so. He had doubtless some cause for hating the English with which we are unacquainted, pursued the secretary. He spent some time in Liverpool when young, and had, of course, many opportunities for studying their manners and character, and the secretary made another movement, as if to leave. But it was my turn to detain him now. Mr. Harwell, you must excuse me, You've been on familiar terms with Mr. Leavenworth for so long. Do you think that, in the case of one of his nieces, say, desiring to marry a gentleman of that nationality, his prejudice was sufficient to cause him to absolutely forbid the match? I do. I moved back. I learned what I wished, and saw no further reason for prolonging the interview."